Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode covers Season 3, Part 9, Out of Town. What's going on uh, outside of Twin Peaks city limits? So we're going to look at Las Vegas, South Dakota, Mr. C, all of those storylines here. For the story sections this week, once again, touch on New York just to say nothing there. And as far as New Mexico goes, of course, nothing in this episode after playing such a huge part in the previous episode. And Buenos Aires has been gone uh, so long at this point, we can pretty much cut it out of the list of locations. Uh, Maybe it'll make a comeback, but it's been four more episodes, well, four episodes exactly, uh, since its last appearance. So at this point, definitely feels like a one-off. For the FBI in South Dakota, we are kind of... Mostly done with the Yankton stuff. We're certainly done with the FBI being in or near Yankton Federal Prison. Uh, the warden does call Gordon to tell him that, you know, Cooper flew the coop, as he puts it. And, of course, Mr. C orders the warden killed. With Buckhorn, that's now where the FBI is focusing their energy. Colonel Davis calls Gordon and basically sends him to Buckhorn, tells him about uh, the discovery of Major Briggs's body. Gordon informs Diane and the pilot. Diane is pissed as usual, but she agrees to go along. <laughs> Not sure she has much choice. She gets a strange text message that's blocked on the airplane, and then when she's down uh, in Buckhorn and she's alone, she gets it, and it says, uh, the conversation around the dinner table... Let me get this right. Around the dinner table, the conversation is lively. And we find out... Uh, you know, that this somehow connects her to Mr. C because we see him sending it in his story section, which we'll get to. This is one of those rare points where doing things in a story section rather than chronologically gets a little confusing, but she receives a text message that Mr. C sent. Meanwhile, Mackley informs uh, the FBI that Hastings' wife was killed, apparently by her lawyer, George, who she was having an affair with, and Hastings' secretary's car blew up the day after... Um, he was arrested. They go into the morgue, they look at the body and the ring that had the two, you know, two Dougie, Love Janie E on it, and they read about a blog that Hastings apparently had, Pursuing Supernatural Phenomena with Ruth. This was like an amateur hobby they kept up called uh, The Search for the Zone. And meanwhile, Albert makes a nice personal connection with Constance. We can see them enjoy each other's humor and and cynicism. And uh, later, Gordon walks outside while Diane's smoking, and he has a little cigarette with her. And then this story winds up in this episode with Tammy interviewing Hastings in the interrogation room. He describes two supernatural experiences that he and Ruth had with Major Briggs, where they were able to contact him. I don't think he calls him Major Briggs. I think he just calls him the Major. It's this mysterious figure he encountered. And the second encounter with him turned into a violent disaster. They had to get some information, I think some coordinates that uh, the Major was looking for. And when they brought them to him, other figures emerged. And I'll talk about this more in the Lodge Lore section. But Hastings was able to ID Briggs by a photo, and he denies killing Ruth. He's weeping, and he says he was going to escape with her. They were going to go to the Bahamas and scuba dive, and they were going to be so happy. And he's crying. It's a sort of poignant but also absurd sequence. They just really go for the gusto. And the last cut is to Albert muttering fruitcake anyone just kind of a classic Albert uh, cynical moment this whole story section here uh, particularly the text message bit is the first clue that Diane has something else going on and that she's somehow connected to Mr. C and people had a lot of trouble wrapping their heads around that I know I certainly did it's like we saw the scene with her and Mr. C alone I don't think anyone's watching them when they have that exchange and uh, well no they are because I think Gordon mentions uh, what happened that night so you heard that but, you know, this is ostensibly a somewhat 
private moment between them and just their facial expressions and everything. Diane doesn't suggest, Mr. C does maybe, but Diane doesn't seem to suggest that she's in on anything with him. It seems like a very sincere moment of, of trauma and being upset. And so people were like, well, wait, how could she actually be? What's going on here? As I said before, this is our first return to Buckhorn since all the Hastings material in parts one and two. And it's funny that Mackley just dumps all this exposition on us. So much of it was set up very carefully in parts one and two. I don't think, yeah, we never meet the secretary. She's never an on-screen character, but we hear a lot about her from Mr. C, from others. There's something planted in the car. We see all the stuff with Hastings' wife, and George is set up as a character. We actually do get to meet him in one scene. And then here it is just delivered in like a few kind of rushed lines for Mackley. And Albert even makes a joke like, gee, what happens in season two? Like what's with this melodrama soap opera and everything? And it feels kind of like Lynch had to fulfill this obligation, but he just kind of wants to brush it off rather quickly and just talk about it rather than show it in any way. And it also feels similarly with the Hastings material when he uh, just goes on this whole spiel about this amazing supernatural sci-fi encounter that he had and we're just sitting there listening to it we don't see it we didn't lynch doesn't work his magic trying to evoke this and partly this does feel like frost ideas that lynch was like okay well i guess we got to follow up on that this is how you want to do it we're partners on this i'll do it that way but he wasn't that excited about it maybe but but it's you know he still has a good time uh getting this performance out of out of hastings where he's just really overwrought and weeping and uh, and sobbing and moaning and all of this stuff as he delivers it. It's almost like that part is more interesting to Lynch than the content of what he's saying about a major floating in the air and his head coming off and people asking all these questions. Uh, it's a more frosty and functional version of the supernatural. It's almost like with the finale where Frost and Peyton and Engels wrote this stuff and Lynch just threw it out. It's like instead of throwing it out, he has somebody say it. That's kind of his approach to it. It also feels to me like this, it's just a gut feeling, this material, this this version of Hastings feels like it comes very much after the Hastings was on part one and two. Not like it was all planned together and then written out in detail, but like they wrote parts one and two in detail, dialogue. And according to Frost, they did. They wrote those, the the opening two hours as its own thing before they tackled the rest of it. But it feels almost like they didn't know what was coming. And so now they're going back and like, okay, so what did all that mean with Hastings and his wife and he murdered Ruth? And that first version of Hastings feels like a lost highway Hastings, like this guy who actually is kind of culpable for whatever happened. And he doesn't know what happened. He's freaked out and he's just this total pawn in a larger game. And and this Hastings too is kind of a civilian in this larger war. You know, this poor poor guy, this high school principal in the middle of nowhere is caught between these great forces of Cooper and Bob and the Major and all this, the Twin Peaks mythology. It gives us a sort of a worm's eye view of what we've been used to getting from a loftier perspective. You know, he's almost like the heavy metal youth of this series, except we spend a lot more time with him and he's treated generally less, less comically. But it's the same sort of thing of this ordinary character, side character tossed into this world. But all of that said, uh, the way it's treated in these, in this episode just feels a world apart from that that part one and two stuff. The specificity of the Bahamas and the scuba diving also feels very frosty and, you know, there's there's just something like... Uh, it, that. That's kind of his touch, to put in a specific geographical or historical reference and have the character kind of dwell on that. So you, you can really see his, his touch in that. Whether in the process of writing, this was like a retcon where they went back and looked at parts one and two and rather than changing it to fit, they just said, let's flow out from there and 
do what we want to do. I don't know. It's an interesting question. I'd love to hear other people address. And uh, I think people have a lot of interesting ideas on that. For the Mr. C story section, not too much to say here. Uh, it does open with the evil doppelganger approaching this farm in daylight down a dusty road, covered, caked, caked in like dried blood, just all over him head to toe. Hutch finds him, you know, of the Hutch and Chantel uh, assassin duo that work for him. Chantel cleans him up. Uh, they killed some farmers. We just see them hover, sitting in the background. Hutch says very lightly, oh, they're sleeping out back. And, you know, that's, that's his euphemism for that. Uh, Mr. C tells them to kill the warden and is very determined to see that happen. Chantel asks if she can torture him before they kill him. And he's like, yeah, do whatever you want. This Cooper is not a sadist, this, this version of him. And that's why it's hard to see how Bob kind of intersects with him. He just wants to get the job done. He'll, he'll, he's perfectly willing to be sadistic. Like with, uh, with uh, what's her name in part two, uh, Daria. And maybe a little bit with Diane. Maybe there's a side of Bob that comes out when he's dealing directly, particularly with women. But for the most part, he seems very like by the book business. Sure, kill him, torture him, whatever. Just make sure he's dead. He sends the text that will go to Diane. He calls Duncan Todd in Las Vegas and threatens him. And uh, Hutch and Chantel, Chantel kisses him goodbye, hands him a snack. And uh, he leaves. He drives away and Hutch shoots a phone. So this is our introduction to another chain in the endless chain of Mr. C's criminal organization uh, trying to kill uh, Cooper. You'd think as a billionaire crime lord spanning the globe, he could do more than hire these sort of chintzy people, uh, you know, who just go around with a gun or two, you know, and maybe a car bomb. You'd think there's more he could do to take Dougie Cooper out. But, hey, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> A couple thoughts about this material. For one, Mr. C, when he's walking down the path in the beginning, he looks a lot like Frankenstein's monster. And that kind of ties into a thought I had in the previous episode where the woodsmen were working on him and almost looked like he was like a golem that they were forming out of the dirt, you know, creating this, this humanoid creature. Also, the fact that he arrives at a farm to meet Chantel and Hutch makes me wonder about the scene in the previous episode where he tells Ray that they're going to the farm. The place you know is the farm, he says. In the Las Vegas story section, uh, as far as the office material goes, there's not much. Bushnell gives Dougie the day off from work. And as far as home life goes, also not much. Uh, Janie E., once she hears that Bushnell's going to give him the day off of work, she says they can take Dougie to the doctor. And meanwhile, Dougie Cooper stares at an American flag as uh, something plays in the background. I think it's God Bless America or America the Beautiful. It's not the national anthem, I don't think. That's funny because this was right around the time of the 4th of July, maybe a couple days later or something. People always wondered if there was stuff in the episode having to do with the air date, but there was so much distance between shooting and deciding the schedule that I don't think so. And especially the way they edited it, they didn't even know where stuff would fall within the series. Most of the Vegas material has to do with the assassination plot, various aspects of it. Duncan is told that he'd better have it done the next time Mr. C calls, so he calls Roger in and... We'll follow up on that stuff later. Meanwhile, the Fuscos are talking to Bushnell, interviewing him, uh, trying to figure out what, what Dougie Cooper's deal is since his car was blown up. And Bushnell says that uh, Dougie joined the office 12 years ago. He's a slow but steady worker, and there was an earlier accident that happened to him. But the Fuscos can't find anything on Dougie. He has no back files before 1997. And, uh, you know, no no Social Security before then, no driver's license, etc., etc. One of them gets an idea. They know somebody in Justice, the Justice Department, and they get his fingerprints and are going to send them in. They get them off of a coffee cup. 
and that's how they're going to figure out who he is. Meanwhile, they're laughing about some taillights. The Fuscos also get the news that Ike has been, uh, they know where he's staying, and he's, his palm print has been identified uh, as, as, or his actual palm, not just his print. <laughs> Uh, you know, they got a piece of his flesh from the crime scene. So we cut to Ike at the motel. He's leaving a message saying that he failed and he's going to try to get out of town. And he gets caught in the motel hallway. And they're all, you know, the the one Fusco who laughs all the time laughs when the other one makes a joke. There's a great story. Uh, well, there's a lot of great stories about the laughing cop. I'm going to link a podcast below uh, an interview with this actor where he just talks about how he met Lynch, how he got the part, how Lynch just loved his laughter, considered him like the baby Fusco that he actually in- invented the part for because there were only supposed to be two brothers, but he wanted this guy to be in it. And he kept trying to find a part. The guy said he's cast off in his villains, so he told him no villain, and then he was like kicking himself like, damn it, now I'm not going to get a part, but but they found this place for him. And apparently they met years earlier when this guy meditated at David Lynch's house. But Lynch didn't remember that. He thought he got the part because of that connection. And then, like later he was like, shot. Lynch was shocked to find out that that was who this guy was. So it was actually a total coincidence. And uh, also this, the them looking at the tail light in the parking lot, that was something Lynch decided on the spur of the moment to shoot during a busy schedule. Like, let's just take the whole rig, go outside, and uh, just, just say some stuff to each other as you look at the car. It's also cool they play the Deer Meadow Shuffle during their scenes. Uh, that's a nice little tie to Firewalk With Me to those early scenes in that film. There's not too many pieces of music from the old show that are used in this, uh, but that's one of them, and I think they might use it a few times. This is very much the Fusco's episode as far as any Vegas element goes. This is the one where it's like, okay, Vegas this week is all about the Fusco's. A storyline that disappears from the Las Vegas location this episode is the Mitchums. I say disappeared in the sense that we haven't seen it for four episodes at this point, so it's fallen off the radar. Uh, We'll see if it comes back, but for now, it's kind of a forgotten storyline. That's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also support this work on patreon.com slash lost in the movies. Tomorrow's episode will hone in on Twin Peaks itself. We're going to look at season three, part nine in the town and uh, see what's going on with all of these characters, uh, many familiar from the original series and some new. 